So this morning, I was reflecting in the last day or two on the past couple sermons that I've preached, and I noticed that I have a habit of including a story of personal failure. So I'm just going to keep it going. (laughs) And this morning, um, I'm going to talk about this little thing that happened about 14 years ago when my oldest was one. We went to Target because I didn't have anything to do other than go to Target. So she and I went to Target, and I don't remember the exact like way that this unfolded because you're gonna go how did this happen (laughs) but I locked my keys in the car okay fine but I I locked them in with my (laughs) one-year-old who was only partially buckled in her seat and so she had a buckle like right here and no other buckles and so I'm looking in at her She's looking out at me, and I'm like, oh, no, you know? But then it kind of got worse, because she started to, like, wiggle out, like, down, like, trying to slide down and out of the seat from underneath this buckle. And I'm thinking, this is not good. I don't know what to do, you know, at all in this moment. And then it gets even worse, because the hood on her coat got, like, hung up on the straps and stuff of her car seat. And so... Now it's caught, and she's starting to drop lower and lower. And I'm going, is she going to choke? Is I, am I literally going to stand on this side of the window and watch my child choke to death? And so now panic is starting to set in, and I think, what am I going to do? I do not know what to do. And I'm looking around the parking lot to see what could I do to break this window and still not harm my child, you know? And so I end up calling Target, because I was like, if, if anything, they have a hammer in there, and they can run out probably quicker than anything else, and we can break this window. Well, by the time somebody got out there, she managed to struggle down and out of her seat, and that hood got un- unhooked. But I'm telling you this story, because I think we all have a similar story, where it's like, oh, in this moment, I'm in way over my head, where I feel completely powerless. I don't even know what to do right now. And, and I really need help. And as we're focusing in on our corporate fast and praying and fasting for different things, many of us have something particular on our mind. And one of the things that we think when we're leaning into prayer is, God, I'm powerless. I need your power for my life, my ministry, and these things that are on my heart. And I think God wants to give it to us, right? He definitely does. So um, we're going to dive into a text that talks a little bit about power ministry and a pretty amazing story from the Bible. Um, One thing I wanted to say about the passage we're about to read, I hate to do this, but i got to give you a preface, because if you're holding a Bible like this, a portion of what we're about to read might not be in it. Um, There are many, many manuscripts that what we have now came from. Some of them include the words, and fasting at the last part of the passage we're reading. Some of them don't. We're going to include it because um, even though it says that some demons can only be cast out by prayer and fasting, even if when Mark wrote this book, he didn't say and fasting, if he just said some demons can only be cast out by prayer, in its essence, um, one commentator was writing, in its essence, fasting is implied because what is fasting without prayer? It's this intentional, intensive prayer activity. So I'm going to include and fasting, even though it's debatable, okay? And the same goes for one other verse that I'm going to reference in Matthew chapter 17, verse 21, might not actually be in your Bible. Okay, so let's get going. Um, a quick 
preface to this passage, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, is that Jesus and three of his disciples are just coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And that is what has just preceded what's about to unfold. I'm going to read this to you. Do we have a slide for Matthew 9? Thank you. Mark 9. I apologize. Okay, um, I'll read this because it's quite long. And when they came to the disciples, this is Jesus and three of the disciples that were on the mountain. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And then when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Amen. Okay, so we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this situation and what is happening here. Um, in talking about power ministry, we just read a real great example of it. And I'm sure if you haven't, you've heard other speakers talk about this kind of story, but sometimes this type of thing still happens today. I'm not going to give you tons of personal stories about driving demons out of people that were resistant because I don't have these personal stories. But that's great because we're all growing in this together, and that's what I'm excited about with this text is it's like a growing text. So what we're seeing here is this infirmity, right? This man comes with his son, and it's like this really awful situation. First of all, we know that it's been going on for a long time, right? So there's this element of, this has been my life for a long time, and it's torture, right? This demon is, at times, controlling his son to the point that he'll throw him into a fire or into water. And if you can imagine the effect that this would have on a family, especially in those times where probably open fires were semi-common, it would be devastating because somebody would constantly be thinking, worried about what is happening to them. Do we have our eye on them? Are they safe? Are they, 
they're having to heal from the incidents where it does happen. And you can imagine like the economic effects it could have on somebody in that situation or even the, so the societal effects that it would have on their relationships. Like this is something that is deeply affecting this boy and his father and his family. And to this point, they've had, this is their situation for years and years and years. And then Jesus comes along, right? And you can imagine the testimony reaching this father's ear of what Jesus had done for somebody else. And so he comes to bring his son. But guess what? Jesus isn't there. He comes in. There's these disciples. Okay, the disciples do have some power, but <laughs> this reminds me of when I've gone to the hospital before. And it's like, oh, you're going to have this procedure. If it goes wrong, you could end up paralyzed or like with horrible migraines for the rest of your life. And by the way, can we practice on you with this intern? <laughs> I'm like, no thanks. I'd really like the expert on this one. But they didn't get the, the expert, this man and his son. They got the disciples. They got the interns. And they failed. And the disciples were unable to help him. And when you think about things that happen in your life and the things that we go through, like the things that happen build our expectation for the future, right? So you can imagine at this point, this man who's brought his son, his expectations for the future have dropped even lower. Because while Jesus' disciples aren't Jesus, they do have power in his name, and they have been practicing healing people and delivering people from demons. So in this moment when the disciples fail, you can imagine his disappointment and his hopes plummeting. He's a really broken down man at this point. And you can also imagine the disciples going, oh, no, we have no frame of reference for failure. <laughs> Not when we're with Jesus. Not when we're operating in Jesus' name, but here we are, and we failed. Um, the, a book that I read called Spiritual Authority, it's by Rob Reamer, he talks about desperation, and he says that desperation is often the platform of breakthrough because it makes us humble enough to be open to new solutions. Desperation is often the birthplace of faith because dire circumstances cause us to cry out to God for the breakthrough that we need. And that's what's happening here. The situation is getting more desperate, and we're going to see where faith is at in this moment and then what God can do with that. So Jesus does come on the scene, and the Father, in his desperate state, says, if you can do anything... Which, by the way, is one of the most notable statements of lack of faith that we see in the New Testament. Because maybe they exist all over the place, but they're not pointed out so explicitly. If you read the New Testament, you see all these stories of Jesus healing people just all over the place. And there's many notations of people's faith. If you look in Matthew 8, there's a leper who comes to Jesus, and he said, Jesus if you're willing, you can make me clean. And so Jesus, and Jesus heals him. In Matthew 9, there's a woman with a bleeding issue. And she said to herself, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. Like she believed he didn't even have to consciously recognize her presence or lay his hand on her or do anything. All she had to do was touch his garment. And he turned to her and said, woman, your faith has made you well. 
Then in Matthew 8, there's a centurion or a soldier who has somebody under him who's, I think, paralyzed. And he comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you heal my servant? And Jesus said, sure, I'm coming. And he said, no, I understand power and authority. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus said, truly, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. So there's all these testimonies of faith paired with healing. And now we're encountered with this very explicit revelation of a lot of doubt and a little faith. Because the man says, if you can, would you help us? And Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the man said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because he was very aware that even though he did have some faith, there was a lot of doubt in his heart, right? And I can relate to that. There are times where I pray for something. I'm like, God, I, I would just, please, this miraculous healing would be amazing. But in there is this whispers of doubt. And then we see how gracious and merciful God is. Because despite the tiny amount of faith that this man is exhibiting, Jesus heals this boy. It's not completely dependent on the, the man's ability to carry faith into this hard place. It's God's grace, and it's beautiful. So what is the real problem here going on with the disciples? Like, they've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and yet they failed. And at the end of our Mark passage, Jesus does say this kind of demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. But that's really the remedy to the problem, and there's, there's other issues at play. So what's the problem? Is it authority-related? Do they just not have the authority for this particular strength of demon? Like there's this hierarchy of demons. Do they just not have enough authority for this one? Um, we know that's not true because in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Jesus gave his disciples power. He said, and, I, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So it's already been said. He has, the, the disciples have power over all demons. So we know it's not an authority issue. And what came to my mind here was when I was in college and I was an assistant manager of like a snack shop. And I could go in, I could open the store, I could close the store, I'd take the cash, lock it away, and all that kind of stuff. But if I showed up to open that shop without my keys, what would happen? I wouldn't be able to open it. I'd have the authority to open that shop, but I wouldn't have the ability to do it because I didn't have the key. And that's what's happening here. The, the disciples have the authority to send this demon away, but they don't have the ability in this moment because they don't have the key. And Jesus goes on, and he um, actually tells them what, what the root of their problem is. If we compare the Mark account with the Matthew account, it gives us a little bit of a fuller picture. It's like two different people retelling an event, and you get a little bit more details from one and more details from another one. And so this is what Matthew says. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind doesn't go out by, by prayer and fasting. So basically, Jesus is saying, here's the diagnosis. The diagnosis is that your, your faith is small, and the remedy is prayer and fasting. 
Okay, and so um, what I'm reminded of in this is that the disciples had faith, right? We know they had faith because they were doing all these other things. They had already done all these healings. All these deliverances had happened in Jesus's name. So they had faith. And you think about how when you have those experiences with God, it builds your faith. You can look back at the things that he's already done and been like, my faith is growing in these things. So they had faith, but there was a limit. It's like they reached the max potential in that moment of what could be accomplished with what they had right then. And I think about, like, I, I took a weightlifting class one time, and one of the things you, you did at the very beginning was you would just lift weights, one set, next higher, than, and next higher, 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 until you couldn't lift a weight. And then you knew what your max potential lifting ability was. And if you designed the right program and did all these different things, you could continue to work out and actually eventually increase your max weightlifting capability, right? And that's kind of what I think of in the faith arena. It's like, as we fast and pray and draw near to God, as we increase our intimacy with him and as he draws near to us and we see how he works and what he does in our lives, our faith continues to grow and grow and grow. And there's no limit to what that next level of growth could be. Um, so... Jesus cast this demon out. And I think about how sometimes we think, oh, of course Jesus did it because he's God's son and he's perfect. Of course he could do it. But I believe that everything that Jesus did in front of his disciples was possible in the spirit for them as well. I think that what he did was he went and he fasted for 40 days before his ministry started. And he resisted the temptations of the enemy. And, and then in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says that Jesus often went away to lonely places to pray. It was the practice of his life to be near his father, to be cultivating intimacy with his father and positioning himself to move in power. And so while this wasn't necessarily the habit of his disciples yet, it was Jesus' habit and he was prescribing it for them. The, um, one of the pastors associated with the International House of Prayer, Mike Bickle, he says this about prayer and fasting. He says, prayer and fasting tenderizes our spirit. Our prayer and fasting positions us to operate in more agreement with the Holy Spirit, and therefore there's a greater manifestation of power. So it's this... Um, mirroring kind of thing, where it's like, God, I'm positioning myself in front of you. What are you doing? Jesus said he did what he saw the Father doing. What are you doing, Lord? What are you saying? I want to be in agreement with you. I want to be aligned with you. I'm positioning myself in this posture of weakness through prayer and fasting to be aligned with you and to see what you're doing and to hear what you're saying. Um... I think one of the only stories I have, because I'm not a prolific faster, <laughs> I don't love fasting yet, maybe someday I will. Um, in fact, the first time I fasted food for three days, I had to tell somebody that I was doing it because I knew otherwise I would just not stick to it. So just the accountability of somebody else knowing that I was doing it helped me. <laughs> for three days, and I made my way through it. Um, and I believe that 
you know, it's not that we want for selfish gain in prayer and fasting, but God does promise reward. It's inherent when we get close to him. Reward is inherent, right? Hebrews 11, um, verse 6, says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because one, first you believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, right? And so in this prayer and fasting posture, it's like, I believe there will be a reward in this place, whether it's this intimacy with the Father and knowing his love for me more in my spirit, or whether it's seeing him bring breakthrough in this other place, whatever, whatever it is. It may not look like what we think it might, but you will receive something when you draw close to the Lord. Well, maybe on my second time fasting, um, I was fasting over a particular situation. There was a, kind of a crisis in a friend's life, and uh, people, a variety of people were praying, and I was praying and fasting. And I had um, the opportunity to pray with this person, and I just felt so clearly the voice of the Lord to just say, you know, pray that anything hidden would be revealed. And that's all it was, just pray that anything hidden would be revealed. And then shortly after that, my friend reported, I'm seeing a demon. Like, it's taunting me. It's, it's like provoking me and telling me that it has power in my life. And it's also telling me why it has power in my life. Like, what the root of this power goes back to. And... Um, in that moment, it was just so clear that it's like God's favor is on this moment because the enemy's nature might be to taunt and to provoke and to intimidate, but it's certainly not to disclose the nature of his power. Like I think about, a, a, like if there was a, somebody who murdered somebody, it's so rare for somebody like that to go to the police and say, hey, I did this, and by the way, here's where you can find the evidence so that you can put me away forever. Because that's what happened with this demon. By the way, here I am. This is where my power lies. Come and get me and put me away forever. And that's what happened. Right? So in that scenario, it's this idea that like God's favor rests on us and on those things that we're praying for. When we're in that place where it's like, Lord, I'm surrendered to you, but I'm seeking this. And it aligns with your heart. He gives clarity in those places. He moves in power. Like, that's the power of God, you guys. A simple request, like, reveal, Lord. Boom. Here you go. Right? Um, if the musician could come up, we're going to get ready to start closing it down. Thanks, Heather. Um, we talk about the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, he said, behold, the kingdom of God is here. And we talk about the now and the not yet of that kingdom, right? Jesus came. He paid the full price for all of our sin and everything. He paid the full price that it would take to restore all of what's wrong back to perfection. He paid it on the cross and he rose from the grave. And he has total power over all that's wrong. But we still live in this place where it's like sometimes the now in our life isn't the what's to come. We're waiting in this not yet moment where we haven't seen the fullness of what God wants to give us yet. And it's for different reasons. Maybe it's not the right time for us to receive a fuller measure of freedom in Christ. That actually is for now. <laughs> that is definitely for now. But sometimes it's like, 
hey, I've been praying for this healing for a really, really long time, and it hasn't happened. I think there's some mystery in that, in those places of not yet. In this Bible story, in this New Testament story, you can see all these not yet places where the disciples, for one, they're not yet to the place where they understand that they need a greater level of intimacy with the Lord. They're not yet to the place where they have power to do this miraculous thing and cast this super awful, horrific, intimidating demon out. They don't, they're in that not yet place. The Father and the Son, until they met Jesus, they were in this not yet place. We have some of those not yet places in our lives too, where it's like, God, we're waiting for the fullness of what you have to offer through Christ's death and resurrection. We're waiting for that and we haven't seen it yet. Some of you might be fasting because of an affliction where it's like, God, where is the breakthrough and the freedom that I need in this place? You know, John spoke a word about freedom this morning and I thought that was really interesting because what my mind went to was, um, when I got up this morning, I heard a weird noise by my deck and I went out to look and there's a sparrow trapped like in a really weird spot of like, what is that, shingles? I don't know, something underneath my deck. It's trapped, but it's like a semi-flexible thing. And so I took like a garden rake and I like kind of pulled on this thing and out flies the bird. And I was like, God, I think you're speaking about freedom. Like he intends to set people free this morning. There's freedom in Jesus available always. Um, Perhaps you're leaning into breakthrough for a healing, a physical healing that we haven't seen yet. It's this not yet place. And by the way, I want to be very clear. While we're talking about faith, I've heard people say, oh, maybe you didn't get that because you don't have enough faith. But by the way, in this passage, you see very little faith and God's grace and mercy overcomes that. So do not listen and hear any condemnation regarding your faith this morning. That is not from Jesus. Keep leaning in, though. He is a healer and he offers fullness. It's coming. Um, maybe your not yet place is that you're looking at the disciples going, well, look at all the authority they had and they couldn't do this. I, I just have nothing. Like, I couldn't ever imagine myself doing street ministry and casting demons on people. I don't have authority like that. Um, Rob Reamer describes authority, spiritual authority this way. He says, spiritual authority is rooted in identity. It's expanded in intimacy, and it's activated by faith. So it starts with knowing whose you are. You're a child of the king. When you follow Jesus, you're a prince or a princess in his kingdom that comes with all that royal privilege and all of that royal honor and all of that royal authority. But just following Jesus, uh, you know, in the beginning steps, we'll, we'll have a, an amount of spiritual authority with it. But it's in those places of intimacy where that authority expands. It's in those places where you're before God and you're saying, God, I'm still messed up. By the way, I see you pointing this thing out in me that you want to change. I surrender that to you. Our authority expands when we're submitted and surrendered to Christ because Christ gives his authority to those who follow him. So maybe God's pointing something like that out to you where it's like, surrender this to me. I want you to walk in more authority. 
I, I want to give you the fullness of that. But just walk in surrender. Walk in surrender. And then I think, too, sometimes it's just we forget to invest in the kingdom. Sometimes it's like, yeah, I carry all this spiritual authority with me, but I'm just not using it. Maybe that's something God is speaking to you this morning. Maybe you're in this not yet place of faith where the Father was. Maybe you see yourself in that. I know I do sometimes. Where it's like, God, I believe. I pray this prayer literally. God, I believe, but please help my unbelief. I recognize this doubt that also exists alongside. Lord, would you bring the fullness of faith to that place that you want to bring? As I draw close in prayer and fasting, Lord, would you show me yourself? Would you increase my belief for your word for me? Um, I think that God wants to return lost faith this morning. Uh, I didn't tell her that I was going to mention this story, but I lo- my daughter lost my coat a few weeks ago, and like four or five weeks ago. And at the same time, I lost my car keys. There I go with keys again. But anyway, I lost my car keys. And so it's been weeks that I've been running off my spare set of car keys. And I'm going, oh my goodness, if I don't find my real keys, I'm in big trouble, right? So finally, I start praying, Lord, help me find my keys. Help me find my keys. I, I wasn't finding them. I thought, I don't have no idea where they are. I checked all my coat pockets. Total disconnect here, but then I, I made a call to Julie Rossi. I was like, hey, Julie, I think my daughter says she lost her coat, which is my coat, at St. Titus after youth group like four or five weeks ago. And Julie said, hey, were there some keys with it? <laughs> and she said, you know, we weren't sure like who, who it belonged to because... Um, the AI programs, the Aliquip Impact programs go on at St. Titus too. So we thought maybe it was AI people. But then when we looked at the keys, we saw this little keychain on there. And we recognized it because it, it's this little beaded keychain that I made with the kids on a Sunday night. And I had taught them out of this Matthew passage if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And so we made this little keychain that says faith, and on the end is a mustard seed. And how like God is it that he returned this to me this week? So I think God wants to return to us faith that's been lost. And also, if you relate to the disciples and you're like, hey, I'm moving in the kingdom. I'm moving in kingdom authority. I've seen deliverances. I've moved in all of this. There's still more. God's kingdom is always expanding. And he wants to expand you to new levels of faith even in that place. That's really all I have, you guys. Um, thanks for listening. Um, I'm, I'm just excited because I really think God is speaking about this. I think that he is just going to bring us into fuller measures of faith and ministry through that.